0: podcast a program that explores utah law paying particular attention to its unique aspects if you find this program informative helpful or entertaining please subscribe please share it with a friend and give us a favorable review my name is ben lusty and i'm an attorney in salt lake city utah today's episode is all about civil discovery or discovery in civil lawsuits and as you'll see it's a rather tedious and sometimes clumsy process but it is the way by which litigants in a civil case are able to discover facts about the case from the other side it's important to note from the outset that discovery is governed by the rules of civil procedure everything that happens in discovery in theory proceeds according to written law on the other hand the rules encourage and give the parties significant leeway to stipulate to make rules outside of or to make agreements outside of the rules and to conduct discovery as they see fit. When it works well, the discovery rules promote cooperation and help achieve an orderly adjudication of disputes. When it doesn't work well, discovery can be a bit of a train wreck and can add years and years to litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the costs. So we're gonna take a look at some of the ways that Utah allows parties to conduct civil discovery, and I'll give you an insider perspective on what can go wrong. So stay tuned. So before we go too far, I did want to make a note that I'm actually making this recording from Blanding, Utah. I'm on a little bit of a trip and I damaged my microphone in transit. So the audio may be a little different from in the past. Hopefully I'll have this resolved shortly. So when we start with fact discovery, We always like to compare where we are now with the common law and the common law period. And and really the common law period is defined as that period before the adoption of the Utah rules of civil procedure, which would have been in the fifties. Prior to that, pretrial procedure was really almost up entirely to the discretion of a judge. You could do some of the discovery acts that we're about to discuss in detail if you got permission from the judge. So you'd go to the judge and you would file a motion and say, we want to take a deposition your honor and you'd state your reasons why or we'd like to issue a subpoena to another party or to a third party and you'd give your reasons why and the judge had a lot of discretion and sometimes judges abuse their discretion sometimes judges exercise their discretion differently and it really became sort of a problem where with some judges would be very lenient and allow the parties to take extensive discovery practice But other judges wouldn't, they would be very restrictive. And sometimes you don't know all the information that you need to put on a persuasive case. At the time you file your lawsuit, you may know you've been injured, but you may not have access to all the information. So here's an example, you're injured in a car accident and you wonder, or you think that maybe the defendant's automobile was not well maintained or was negligently maintained. Well, you're not going to have access to all the information that they do on how their car's been maintained or where it's been maintained. So you might want to get information from them. You might want to ask them, when did you last have the oil change? When did you last have the brakes checked, et cetera. And if you didn't have a way to compel them to answer those questions, why would they answer? Why would they help you make your case? But at the same time, you wouldn't have knowledge. So discovery is very useful in, as I said, hopefully enabling the orderly adjudication of disputes. Prior to the adoption of the civil rules of procedure, though, if you needed to get that information, it was the luck of the draw, sometimes with the judge, whether you could get an order to compel the other side or whether you could discover that information informally through some other means. Maybe some witness would come forward and tell you, but how often would that happen? Or it might be that the only person who would really know the information you need is the defendant himself or herself, And why would they volunteer that information short of compulsive rules requiring them to do so? It used to be, if we go back even further, say into the 19th and the 18th century, that there was no formal pretrial proceedings at all. A complaint would be given to a clerk, and if you could get the defendants into court on whatever court day was held, the court would actually hold the trial right there without any other proceedings before the trial. And the complainant would come forward and give his or her evidence. And the defendant, this may be the very first time that they're hearing the evidence at all. And they would just have to make the case as best they could. They might not know everything the plaintiff knows. And so it became something of a game of of chicken. Uh, You sometimes see the cases referring to it as a game of blind man's bluff, where no one exactly knows what the other side knows. And we all just show up on the important day and kind of have a shootout Interestingly, if you go to small claims court in Utah today, that's how it still is. There's no discovery in Utah small claims court, but because the claims are smaller, the stakes are smaller, we sort of are okay with that. So at common law, you had no discovery, no formal right to get information from the other side, very limited ability to discover information from either the other party or from third parties. And the net result of that is oftentimes parties would have a meritorious defense, but they wouldn't be able to discover it, or they wouldn't be able to gather the evidence they need to put their case on. So in the 1950s, rules of civil procedure were adopted, and they set out basically all the pretrial rules, all the ways a, a case is filed, all the motions, how the motions are filed, and they also set out several methods for discovery. That is the formal way that you discover information from the other side, to which all parties are required to participate in, and if they fail to require, could face sanctions. So we're gonna go through some of those discovery processes now. The first major rule that we're gonna look at is called the Initial Disclosure Rule. And this is contained in Utah Rule of Civil Procedure 26. And initial disclosures are essentially what they sound like. At the beginning of the case, each party is required to make a disclosure to all parties of certain information. And the rule itself specifies what has to be disclosed. Now, the first thing is that initial disclosures have to identify the name and the contact information, if known, of each individual likely to have information which may support the disclosing party's claims or defenses, right? So let's say you're in a car accident and you're the plaintiff, and there were four people who witnessed the accident, who gave statements to the investigating Highway Patrol officer. And you have a copy of that because you can get a copy of the UHP report. So you know these four people, you're obligated to disclose them at the beginning of the case. So you say to the defendant, John, Bill, Sarah, and Mary saw the accident. They actually gave statements and according to the police report, this is their contact information, and that's all the contact information I have. They may have discoverable information, and I may use them in my case in chief. All right, who else might be a person who has knowledge or information for a plaintiff in an auto accident? Well, if you receive medical treatment, all of your healthcare providers, so you have to disclose them. If you believe that you've lost some time at work, or you've lost some ability to work, you might want to disclose your supervisor to say, yeah, he can't do the job anymore and he used to make this much money. Uh, If you feel that it's affected your relationship with your spouse or your children, you might actually wanna list your spouse as someone who can say, you know, after the accident, they were down for a while. It was really hard for them to get up and do their chores. There was some stress in the marriage because of that. It gave me a lot of additional burden, et cetera. So you, you might wanna disclose that. You're also required to disclose each person who might called to testify in your case in chief. So it's not just people who may have information. You also have to identify people who may be called to testify. Now in the normal course, most litigants will list every potential witness or every potential person who may have information as a potential witness because at the start of the case and you're feeling it out and you're trying to learn the information, the attorney just might not know who they're going to call. So they're going to say, here are the 10 people who have discoverable information, and all of them may be witnesses. The next thing you're required to disclose is a copy of all the documents, all the data, electronically stored information, which you may use as evidence in your case. So, again, what might this be? Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, that would be the the, the Highway Patrolman's Report. Oftentimes, the Highway Patrolman's Report itself is not admissible into evidence, but you might identify it as a document and disclose it anyway. If there were injuries, certainly all the medical records, those would be something you might want to disclose. If you lost work or you feel you've lost income, you might disclose copies of your tax returns. You might disclose copy of your pay stubs. The other thing that has to be included are electronically stored information. And so sometimes people will not realize this, but you know, if you post on social media, if you make posts relevant to the incident or relevant to your lawsuit, those are potentially something that may be useful that you might want to present into evidence or might be something that the other side might discover anyway. So you might want to disclose them as well. The next thing you have to disclose is a computation of any damages you claimed, as well as a copy of all documents or evidence, which might support the computation of damages. So what might that mean? Well, in our case of a auto accident, certainly your medical bills, if there was damage to the automobile, the damage estimates or the actual cost of repair, and if you lost income, you know your W twos from before the accident, your W twos from after the accident, your pay stubs, etc., uh, and tax returns. Those might all be something that you would take into account, and you could say, "Look, I had fifty thousand dollars in medical bills. I lost thirty thousand dollars in in lost income, and I couldn't mow the lawn for six months, so I had to hire someone that cost four thousand dollars." You add that all up plus interest on all these damages and maybe I have some future medical bills that I might have to pay for in the future. And and you put that all in your, in your disclosure statement and you provide it to the other side. Other things that you might have to, well, that you will have to disclose in your initial disclosures include a, a copy of any insurance agreement. So if there's any agreement out there which might be insure the incident, then you have to provide a copy of, of that insurance agreement of that policy or the declarations page. And then if you refer to any document in your complaint, then you're going to have to provide that as well. So for example, if you say that there's been a breach of contract, well, then you need to provide a copy of the contract at the beginning. Now, if it's a personal injury action, Utah actually requires some additional disclosures. So the plaintiff has to disclose all the healthcare providers who treated them or examined them for the injury. Then they also have to provide a list of all healthcare providers who treated them for any reason within the five years immediately preceding the injury. They have to provide a copy of their, well, not a copy, their social security number and their Medicare health insurance claim number, as well as their full name, date of birth, and social security number. And the reason that this has to be disclosed is that if there's a, so when, someone is injured in an accident, oftentimes their own health insurance will pay for it, but they'll assert a lien against the recovery. So they'll say, yes, we'll pay the $50,000. But if the defendant is ordered to pay, then we get reimbursed for that. If the healthcare is provided by Medicare or Medicaid, there's actually a statutory right of Medicare and Medicaid to assert a lien. And so the defendant will want to know that, will need to know that because if the defendant settles the claim without the lien being satisfied, the defendant can actually be penalized. So they want to know that as well. Additionally, the plaintiff has to describe or disclose any disability income insurance they have, uh, a list of their employers for the five years preceding the accident, copies of bills for medical care that they may receive, and if there were any investigative reports, so like a, a highway patrol officer's report, Even though that might not be admissible, they still have to provide it. The defendant also has to do some additional disclosures, including a a copy of the insurance agreement, a copy of investigative reports by any public official or agency, uh, a copy of all written or recorded statements in the possession of the defendant or the defendant's insurers or counsel. So oftentimes insurers at the outset of a lawsuit will interview people under oath And so those are automatically disclosed under the rules. In domestic relations cases there's additional disclosures that basically govern the financial affairs of the parties. So you have to disclose your income, your expenses, you have to do the financial declaration that's required in personal injury lawsuits, and that's required under the initial disclosures. Now the first question you might have is, well what happens if you don't disclose anything? All right let's say you you want to wait. You want to sit on some good information until trial and you want to ambush someone. And so you don't include it in your initial disclosures. The rule says if there's something you knew of or should have known of that you failed to disclose in a timely matter, that doesn't get to be presented into evidence. So if you have, you know, the smoking gun and you wait until trial to present it, and the other side objects and said that was not disclosed and they had a requirement to disclose it in their initial disclosures, the judge is very likely going to exclude that and you don't get to use that information. I've seen judges do this regularly. So there's always an incentive to make a full and fair disclosure. Anything that you might possibly want to use should be disclosed. The other thing too, is what happens? Well, I don't know information now, but as the case develops, I learn additional information. What do I do then? And the rule says you have to supplement your initial disclosures. So it's not uncommon in some of these cases for there to be nine, 10, 11 rounds of supplementation, particularly when there's a A complex personal injury, someone may be receiving treatment for many years, and as they continue to go to doctors, new witnesses and new exhibits, new evidence are being generated, and so periodically they'll supplement their initial disclosures. Initial disclosures are very important. They're the starting point for the case, and parties have an affirmative duty to provide them, and it's very useful to get that information from the very start. Moving on from initial disclosures, and we're moving chronologically through a case, well, there's no written rule saying that you have to go initial disclosures to the next stage, which, which I call written discovery. But this is how most parties do it. So the next stage is written discovery. And this consists of three types of written requests for information to the other side. The first is called an interrogatory or interrogatories. The second is requests for production of documents. And the third are requests for admission. So, starting with interrogatories these are questions put in writing to the other side that they have to answer under oath within 28 days of service of the interrogatories so if we get back to our driver in the auto accident case the plaintiff might ask the defendant the following interrogatory identify everyone who was in the vehicle at the time of the accident right so why might you want to ask this question well you might want to see if there are other witnesses and you might want to take their deposition. We'll discuss depositions later. You might also issue an interrogatory, which is essentially something like identify every time you had the vehicle maintained within one year preceding the accident, including describing what maintenance was performed and by whom, right? So if you're worried that maybe the brakes were defective on the vehicle or the steering or something was off, this would be useful information. So interrogatories are all about asking questions of the other side, getting responses, in writing. Now the responding party is obligated to provide the information under oath, meaning that whoever is signing the information provided in the interrogatory, the response to the interrogatory, is declaring under oath, under penalty of perjury, that to their knowledge, the information is correct so if you provide false statements in the interrogatory you can find yourself in, in a lot of in a lot of trouble now there's a lot of gamesmanship with written discovery anytime you're dealing with lawyers there's going to be objections so people will make objections to interrogatory requests and we'll talk about some of the objections objections later but the goal of the responding party is almost always to provide as little information as possible and it's not at all unusual for me to issue written discovery to another party and get the responses where all they are, are objections almost no new information is provided and sometimes i'm not going to accept that sometimes i might actually request the attorney to update that response but sometimes i'm okay with it because if they're not responding to my information i might want to hold on to that for tactical use later but very often Uh, The response will, you know, you'll get the question, identify everyone who's in the car, and the response will be, it was Joe, Bill, and Sally. You might get a request for information, an interrogatory that's something to the effect of, describe your trial strategy. Well, if that's the case, you can say objection, that's calling for privileged information. So interrogatories can be objected to, and you can make objections, but still answer a limited part of the interrogatory that you don't think is objectionable, or you can simply object if you're the responding party and say this is an improper interrogatory the next class of written discovery requests are called requests for production of documents and this is where you might say again getting back to our car example plaintiff to defendant produce all records reflecting any auto maintenance you had on the vehicle within one year prior to the accident and then the the responding party the defendant has to go through their records and identify everything that's potentially responsive and provide it. Production of documents is actually one of the more burdensome aspects of discovery in certain classes of litigation. Now, where I do most of my work in medical malpractice, defendant to plaintiff produce your tax records, your your work statements. We want to see if you've really lost income and identify all the healthcare records that you've had and produce them relevant to this case. And that's not so burdensome. Most people know where their healthcare records are. They they're if they file a lawsuit, their attorneys have them and they're easily to easily produced. But for commercial litigation, complex commercial litigation, where you have two major parties who are in a big dispute with dozens of people on both sides who may have had some role to play in, let's say, a oil pipe exploding, right? They're going to be engineers and workers on all sides, and there's going to be all kinds of emails and internal memoranda and internal reports and all of that. The production of documents can actually be a very expensive proposition. You may have to come through millions and millions of documents, millions and millions of pages of electronically stored information. And when that happens, the parties will often retain specialist firms that all they do is search internal records to identify potentially responsive documents to these requests for production of documents and to segregate out documents which might be privileged, uh, which might not be responsive, and then to gather all this information in a comprehensible set to disclose to the other side that can actually be a very big task. Attached to the rule setting out the request for production of documents, there's actually a rule that says a request for entry onto land or for the physical inspection of tangible things. So let's say that, you know, getting back to our car accident case, the plaintiff suspects that the brakes were faulty or that they were poorly maintained and wants to know the answer to that, and the defendant is still in possession of the car, they can actually send them a written request to make the car available for an inspection. The actual discovery itself, the person inspecting it, that's not written, but the document that sets it off is written. Finally, in written discovery, we have what's known as a request for admission, and this is a very interesting rule. A plaintiff can actually ask a defendant, and vice versa, to admit that a certain fact is true, to admit or deny. and. The responding party actually has a duty to investigate if they don't know and make a determination as to whether the fact that they're being asked to admit is true or not. Now, if they've undertaken a reasonable investigation and they don't know, they can't discover the answer, then they can say, look, I can neither admit or deny. But they still have to undertake an effort on their own to determine whether the fact is true or not. Let's go back to our car accident. You may have a request for admission that's something to the effect of. Admit that you were negligently driving the car at the time of the accident, and the defendant will probably say, deny, because I don't believe I was negligent, and that's a legitimate reason to deny. But they might say something like, admit that it was you, defendant, who was driving the accident or driving the vehicle at the time of the accident. Admit, sure. Admit that the accident occurred roughly at 2.42 p.m. at this intersection. Yes, admit. Admit. Admit that there was no one else in the car with you. Yes, admit. And what you're doing is you're not necessarily asking them to admit that they fired the gun, that they are the smoking gun, you know, admit your case is lost and, and that you should be liable or, or admit that your case is bad and, and I should win. But you might want to narrow down the facts. You may want to narrow down the scope of the dispute so that trial is, is focused on one issue. You may believe, for example, that the car in question was subject to a recall. And you want to determine later on whether they did or not uh, bring that car in pursuant to the recall notice to have whatever defective brakes or defective part was fixed. So you might know through your own research on what recalls were issued, that they were driving say a 2020 Dodge Caravan, let's say. And you may know that, oh, the 2020 Dodge Caravan X edition, whatever, was subject to a recall. So you might say, admit that you were driving a 2020 Dodge Caravan X, and then we'll say admit because they were. So then you don't have to prove that later on. And then it makes it easier in your case down the, down the way to say, this was subject to your, your vehicle was subject to a recall and you should have taken that in to be fixed, but you didn't. And that was negligent on your part. And that hurt me. So that's a way that you might use the request for admission to further your case down the road. Now you may also ask a party to admit that certain documents are genuine and that's a good way to avoid disputes later on to avoid things like hearsay and authenticity rules at trial so requests for admission are sometimes used in that respect now there's one more aspect of written discovery that's not between the parties it's called a subpoena and that's a document or it's actually a court order which is served on a third party commanding that party to produce documents to the party that issues the subpoena so let's say that you know, you suspect that they went to Jiffy Lube and had the oil changed on X day. And you may consider that to be an important set of information Well, you're not suing Jiffy Lube, but you can actually have a subpoena served on them, commanding them to produce documents to you relevant to your subpoena. So you might say to them, produce records of all transactions, all interactions you had with the defendant in this year. And then they would have to produce all those records. It's not between the parties. It actually goes to a, it's from party to third party. But the interesting note about the subpoena is it's actually signed by the lawyer, but it represents a command of the court, at least in Utah, it's signed by the lawyer. If a party receives a subpoena lawfully and validly, and they refuse to answer it, they can actually be subject to contempt. Meaning the court can order them to appear in court, pay fines, pay fees, pay whatever damages their contempt cause. In theory, they could actually even be imprisoned for a period of time, although there's a procedure that goes along with that. But those are the main tools uh, in written discovery. And that's sort of the preceding stage to the next stage of discovery, which are the depositions. We'll talk about that now. Depositions are probably the most important part of discovery deposition is where you really get to learn the information that will make or break a case. So what is a deposition? A deposition is a formal interview given under oath with a formal means of recording the interview and preserving a record that is considered to be true and accurate in court. Now, I'm not saying the testimony is considered to be true and accurate, but the record of the testimony is considered to be true and accurate. So there are a couple things about a deposition. Formal interview given under oath in the presence of a court reporter, meaning the witness swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And if they give incomplete, misleading, or incorrect answers, one, you know, in theory, they could be subject to perjury. They could actually be subject to contempt as well, because if you lie in court, that could be perjury, but it's also contempt of the court and could be punished as such. But what's most useful about the deposition is that it's all being recorded and a transcript is being created. So we know exactly the words to all the questions and all the answers. And it can be used in court if the witness gives a different answer from their deposition. So let me give you an example. In the deposition, let's say we're going back to our car accident and we're working under a theory here in this car accident that the 2020 Dodge Caravan was subject to a recall which affected the brakes and that had the owner of the caravan complied with the recall they would have had good brakes and they would have avoided the accident or at least that might be part of the cause of the accident. So we're trying to establish whether the driver, the defendant driver, one was aware of the recall and two did anything to have the recall fixed, have the brake fixed because of the recall. So the examining attorney might say something like, okay, Mr. Jones, defendant, is it true that you were driving a 2020 Dodge Caravan on the day of the accident? Answer, yes. All right. Mr. Jones, were you aware that the 2020 Dodge Caravan was subject to a recall notice regarding the brakes? Answer. I think so. I think I saw that, you know, you get a lot of notices for recalls, you know, they come in the mail all the time. I see them. I, I'm i not sure I saw anyone for brakes in particular. I don't always read them because sometimes, you know, it's like the the latch and I've never had a problem with the latch on the back and sometimes it's the taillight, but I can fix my taillights. Okay. Okay. So question, did you in fact receive recall notices for the 2020 Dodge Caravan? Answer yes I did. All right, do you recall receiving any specifically for the brakes? Answer, no, not for the brakes. So that's the testimony given in the deposition. Now let's say at trial, Mr. Jones is asked the following question by his attorney when he's on the stand. Mr. Jones, did you ever receive any recall notices for your 2020 Dodge Caravan? And he answers, no. All right, that's not consistent with what the deposition transcript said. The deposition was, well, I didn't receive any for the breaks, or I don't recall receiving any for the breaks, but I did recall receiving them. So you can actually present Mr. Jones a copy of the deposition, and the jury can see it as well, and say, remember when I asked you whether you received recall notices? Yes, I do recall that. And is this, in fact, your answer? And the answer would be read? Yes. And that's different from what you said here today, isn't it? Yes, it is that's called impeachment. The other thing that's useful about deposition testimony is because it's given under oath, it's considered to be admissible, meaning you can use it in a motion for summary judgment, meaning you can present it to the judge and say, look, there's no dispute as to these important facts, so therefore we don't even need to go to trial. So let's say, for example, the defendant uh, gives this testimony's deposition, you're right, I was negligent, I should have checked the brakes. I should have taken in the van to the recall notice. It was all my fault, right? You can then go to the judge and say, if you're the plaintiff, your honor, look, he admitted in his deposition that he was negligent and he gave the reasons why he can't now say otherwise. You should find as a matter of law that he was negligent because remember trial is about resolving factual disputes. The judge interprets the law and applies the law but we have a jury to determine the facts. But if there's no dispute of the facts, right, if everyone agrees that the defendant was negligent, then the judge can just simply issue judgment as a matter of law. And in fact, you can do that for all discovery responses. Anything that's given under oath is considered to be admissible, and thus can be used for these motions. Depositions are also useful because you can get very deep into certain questions. You can explore certain questions at depth and in detail far more than you would in an interrogatory or other requests for production of documents or other written discovery. You can also use the written discovery responses that you got before to inform your deposition questions. You can also use the documents you got from subpoenas to inform your deposition questions. So, you know, get back to this example of the uh, oil rig exploding and big companies and dozens and dozens of people, and you're examining the chief engineer of of, of one of the drillers and uh, you've got all his emails for three years about the project. And one of the emails says, I'm worried about the pressure levels on rig 17. And that's all it says, right? That's all the email says. And you can go to him and say, look, on this, day, you know, on this day, which was like a year and a half ago, you said, I'm worried about the pressure levels, the oil pressure levels. Why, what did you mean? What was the purpose of that email? Why were you sending that to this person? Do you know what happened to that information? Did you give that information to anyone else in any other format? Did you say that to someone else? Did you make any changes to your design? Did you make any changes to the operating because of that apprehension or that fear that the oil pressure levels were off? Depositions are incredibly useful for getting to that information. And also, you may get information in the deposition that you did not anticipate. In fact, that's kind of your goal that you can then loop back and explore. And this is also interesting, if you haven't used all your discovery requests, all your interrogatories, all your requests for production, and we'll talk about the limits in just a second, after you do a discovery, then you can do subsequent information requests in writing. So maybe, you know, the the engineer says, you know, I did draft a memorandum to the senior vice president expressing concerns over the oil pressure levels. Oh, when was that? I'm not sure exactly. I think it was in April of 2021. So you finish the deposition the very next day. You send to the other party a request for production that says, give us that memorandum. We need to see it. So that's how depositions can be used. Depositions are incredibly helpful. They're incredibly useful. And that's where you can generate most of the evidence. In fact, when I prepare for trial, oftentimes 80% of the examination that I prepare for any given witness is simply asking them questions that I know the answer to from their depositions. I know I've talked to jurors after trial sometimes, and they always say, "We're well, always amazed how you seem to know everything in advance." Well, and the reason we do is because I've I've already interviewed these people. I already know what their answers are going to be. I've already reviewed their emails, or I've already reviewed their tax documents, or I've already seen their medical records. So we we have a lot of information about these people, and we almost always find what we need to know. We don't always find what we want to find, but we almost always find what we need to know. The last piece of actual discovery that I want to talk about is expert discovery. Now, you may remember from a previous episode, expert witnesses are those who have special training, special credentials, and they're not actually witnesses to the case itself in the sense of they observed something. Well, they can be, but I'm talking about retained experts, people who the parties actually hire to evaluate the evidence, the information, and then express an opinion as to what happened. So we're talking about retained experts, people who take money from, from one of the parties. They're not witnesses in the sense of, you know, they didn't see the explosion, they didn't see the accident, they, they didn't necessarily treat the patient as a medical provider, but they're reviewing all that information and forming an opinion as to whether someone had a certain diagnosis or what their injuries were following an accident or what caused the oil well to explode and what the cost of fixing that may be so we have a separate phase of discovery in utah called expert discovery and that's after we've done all the depositions all the interrogatories all the requests for production of documents between the parties and their witnesses that information then all goes to the experts who form their opinions at the close of fact discovery the parties have expert disclosure requirements. And the plaintiff normally goes first because they have the burden of proof, right? They have the burden of proving their case. So within two weeks of the close of fact discovery, the plaintiff's attorney is required to disclose to all other parties, all, everyone else involved in the case, all the experts that they expect to call at trial, including their retained experts and their non-retained experts. For the retained experts, they have to provide an identification of one, who the person is, two, they have to provide certain information about that person, including a copy of their resume, any publications they've had within the last 10 years and any sworn testimony they've given as a retained expert witness within the past four years. So if they've given any depositions or they've appeared in any trials, they have to identify what those cases are, what that testimony was. Third, they have to give a, a brief summary of what the expert is expected to say, right? You know, I opine that uh, as a result of the auto accident, the plaintiff suffered, you know, a compression fracture at the C5 to C6. And then, you know, that's opinion one, opinion two, they're going to require a fusion surgery and they're going to require revisions. Uh, Then they also have to disclose the amount of money that's being paid to the expert to conduct the study. So this doctor is being paid, let's say $450, $500 an hour, which is pretty par for their review and for their testimony. So that expert disclosure is given. And then within a week of receiving it, the opposing party has to decide whether they want to take a deposition of the expert witness or whether they want to receive a written report further detailing the reports of that expert witness. Uh, and then if they elect to do a, a, a deposition, then they'll schedule a deposition and they'll interview the expert witness. If they want to receive a report then they'll uh, receive a copy of the report within 30 days and the report has to detail all the opinions that the expert intends to express at trial as well as all the bases for the opinion depending on the complexity of the opinion the expert report can be a page or two or it can be many hundreds of pages long again it's just fact specific so that's the last little piece of discovery generally that's set out in the rules So discovery is not unlimited. You don't get to get any type of information from another party. The person requesting information has duties as well. Also, discovery does not allow you to obtain information that is privileged. It doesn't allow you to obtain information for a purpose other than furthering the litigation. As you can imagine, you could get a lot of embarrassing information about someone through discovery there would be a temptation in some circumstances to file a lawsuit just so you could conduct discovery, right? Imagine an environmental group wants to get dirt on say an oil company, they might say, create a false lawsuit because all they wanna do is discover information about how they drill or how they do engineering or something. I'm not saying that, but it's a plausible scenario, right? You could see that you could see all kinds of political shenanigans where candidates might try to sue each other to try to get dirt on on someone else. So the courts try to protect parties from unreasonable or unlawful discovery because the goal of discovery is to help parties obtain information that is relevant to their dispute so that they can present their dispute in a coherent and organized manner to a jury to have their claim adjudicated or so that they can discover all the facts and information about their suit and reach a reasonable settlement. So the first thing is that discovery is limited in scope, meaning you can't just go to a party and say, produce anything. Like, let's say we get back to our, you know, our automobile accident case. The plaintiff can't go to the defendant ordinarily and say, oh, tell me any time that you cheated on your spouse. Tell me any time you beat your wife. Tell me any time, you know, that's not relevant to the case. But the test of whether you can get information from someone is not whether that information is likely to be admissible in evidence. The test of whether you can get information is whether it's relevant to your claim and if it's proportional to the claim. And proportionality is kind of a multi-pronged test. And there's no right answer like, and and this is where there's gonna be some discretion and some difference between judges because some judges may think that some discovery requests are proportional and others might. But discovery is proportional if it is reasonable considering the needs of the case and the amount in controversy. Meaning if you've got a simple $30,000 breach of contract claim, you're trying to collect on some debt for example, you don't get to go digging around uh, the opposing party's entire financial history. Um, If the likely benefits of the proposed discovery outweigh the burden of the expense, right? So discovery is expensive. You don't get to impose upon another party costs that aren't likely to be reasonable. Um, Discovery is consistent with the overall case management and will further the just, speedy, and inexpensive determination of the case. That it's not unreasonably cumulative or duplicative. The information cannot be obtained from another source that is more convenient, less burdensome, or less expensive and the party seeking the discovery hasn't had an opportunity to obtain the information otherwise. So you kind of put that all together and the horse sense that comes out of it is if it's reasonably related to proving your case or to proving your defense, and it, it's just not unreasonable, either in amount or expense, then you're likely to get the information that's necessary. The other side can't say, oh, it's vague, it's too much, it's burdensome. But, you know, Let's say you, okay, let's give some hypotheticals. Let's go back to the oil case, the defense oil company, you know, exploding rig, and you want to get information about other explosions or other drilling mishaps. And let's say it's a really big company and you just go to them and say, produce all documents concerning any oil field accidents in the past 100 years. It's likely to be a very big number There's it's likely to be a lot and none of it, or not all of it is likely to be relevant to your case. So you might say, the court may say, we're going to limit it in scope of time and in scope of facts. So anytime you've had an accident with this particular oil rig or oil derrick in the last, say, 10 years, you could get information on that. Or anytime you've had uh, an accident with this particular oil engineer, right? Maybe this petroleum engineer that the defendant hired is really bad. So produce all accidents on projects on which he's information on all accidents on projects in which he's worked. That's going to be more reasonable. The the mantra you sometimes hear is discovery needs to be a rifle shot, not a shotgun shot, meaning you need to look for something specific rather than broad. It's not a fishing expedition, for example. That's another phrase you hear from time to time. It needs to be reasonably directed towards your case. Another thing is that discovery needs to be used only for the case. So very often parties want to get sensitive Information from another. Maybe it's even a trade secret. Maybe it's even a patent. Uh, but maybe it's just sensitive personal information, medical records, psychiatric records. Sometimes may be useful, and so you don't want that being used out of court. So the court actually has the authority to enter a protective order, meaning it can give varying degrees of protection to the information received in discovery. From the very top, the most scrutin, you know, the 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 most rigorous being. Only the attorneys and their experts can see this. So you can't even give this information to the parties, right? So like, let's say I'm in a, in a intellectual property dispute. I want to get patent information. The court may say, okay, you get to see their patents, but because that might give a competitive advantage to your, your client, you don't actually get to show them to your client. You only get to see them as the attorney and the expert. So we can figure out if there actually is patent infringement, and what the damages may be. So that's the most strict, the most rigorous to something as broadly and, and kind of lax, frankly, as an order that says parties, you just can't use it for anything other than litigation. That's not very protective, but it is in theory protective order. And if someone were to say, get an embarrassing document and discovery and then leak it to the press, right? you, You could, if you knew who did it and how they did it, you could actually take them to court and get an order entered against them saying they violated the protective order. Now, I mentioned before that discovery can be clumsy, it can be messy, and it can take a long time. I want to talk briefly about why that is, and then we'll go into some kind of meta rules, some larger rules about how discovery is done that are relevant. So, one, why is it messy? And why is it clumsy? In part, I, I think that there are essentially two reasons. One is it's hard to write a discovery request or to take a deposition without having some baseline of information from the other side. So, you know, let's say that the the real issue in the case is the oil pressure on the rig, right? The exploding rig. And you don't know that the oil pressure on rig 27 is the important thing at the beginning of the case. All you know is that there was a big explosion and fire and it it just takes a while for it to be identified that this was the source of the information. And then it may, or the source of the explosion, and then it might take a long time to actually identify that someone had been reporting around about it. So let me give you the hypothetical. You have, you know, like say 30 oil derricks and there's a big fire and explosion and you're trying to figure out what happened and you're the plaintiff and you wanna go onto the land to investigate, you have to serve a request for entry upon land to investigate. And then it's gonna take you you know, 30, 60 days or whatever. You may have to bring in an expert. In fact, you're definitely gonna to have to bring in an expert, something like a mining engineer or an oil exploration engineer. And he or she is gonna go into the field and you know take some time look at everything and then prepare a report and the report is going to say well, we only think it's oil rig 27 now maybe that can be done within 30 days but oftentimes it can't right there aren't you know dozens and dozens and dozens of oil engineers everywhere there may only be 3 or 4 in the world who actually do this type of work and you may say hey Dr Bill mining engineer can you come out to let's say Roosevelt Utah where there's a lot of oil drilling To investigate this fire and he'll say sure i'm available in seven months right because i'm consulting all over the world until then all right so now we're twiddling our thumb for seven months waiting on that now we may do some other discovery in the meantime but that's really where the case is going to be driven is when that oil expert comes in and investigates and then gives you the report so you get the report and you say okay oil rig 27 is the likely source It could also be oil rig 28. It could also be oil rig 29. So then you have to go to the other side, the defendant, and say, identify everyone who worked on oil rig 27, 28, and 29. And the other side gets 30 days to respond. But very often it may be hard for them to actually identify all the people who are involved in 30 days because they've got to go to the manager who's still there. Maybe he's not there. Talk to him who was there. Oh, I think Bill was there. I think Joe was there. I think Sally was there, but I could be wrong. Then you call it Bill and Joe and Sally and they identify other people, or maybe they don't respond, right? Maybe they duck your calls or maybe they play phone tag with you for a week or two. And so even though you're trying to get the response done for the defense attorney within 30 days, you you may simply not be able to. And so you call up the other side and say, Hey, can I have a 30 day extension? These are very often granted. Okay. So well, it was like six months to even identify oil rig 26, another two months to identify who was actually working on oil rig 26. So that's eight people. And then you say, okay, or so that's eight months. And you say, okay, well give me all the emails between these people and all the emails mentioned in oil rigs, 27, 28, 29. And the responding party is like, oh, that's going to be a lot, just volumes and volumes, terabytes of information. And it's going to take us 60 days to produce it. Even with an outside third-party consultant. We're now a year into this case before we've even seen the documents identifying what the oil company knew was the problem with these oil rigs. And then we get them and it's terabytes and terabytes of information. And it's going to take us 60 days, 90 days to even identify the important documents. And then we go through all those haystacks and we find five or six needles. Ah, here are five or six important emails. And okay, and then we want to go to the other side and say, okay, we want to take the depositions of these four people who had involvement in drilling the oil rigs, placing the oil rigs, whatever. Okay. Well, people are busy. The plaintiff's attorneys are busy. The defense attorneys are busy. The employees are busy. You might say, okay, provide dates. Okay. Give me a couple days to identify dates for the people who you want to depose. Takes me a week to hear back from all these people. And they've given me, each of them have given me two days. Do any of them work with all? Seven people who have to be in the deposition room. Well, we don't know. And maybe they don't. So, okay, the soonest date we have is maybe three, four months after we've requested it. So now we're 18 months into this case, right? Before we get the deposition testimony that we need, we get all that deposition testimony and it takes almost two years to identify the important information. So it's clumsy, we don't We're we're fumbling around and maybe we think it was oil rig 17, so we go down a cul-de-sac, right? We chase down this information, and it turns out to be not what we're looking for. Another reason that discovery can be clumsy is I wouldn't call it laziness because most attorneys are diligently working and are, are working hard, but if you've got one case, it's it's easy to stay focused and not make mistakes, not to, con, you know, not to not confuse cases in your head to always follow up on emails, to always follow up on phone calls within a minute, within 10 minutes. But if you have 10 cases, it becomes that much harder. If you have 15, even harder, 30 cases, it's even harder. And so each case is a smaller share of that attorney's attention. And so they might not write the most precise requests or they might not write the most precise responses. So in theory, you might say, well, you've requested every document regarding the the drilling of oil rig 27 but i'm just going to give you all the drilling records we have for all of them because i'm i don't i just don't have time to sift through them all so instead of giving you four or five potentially responsive documents here are 100 and then it takes the other side a lot more time to go through all those documents and identify what what needs to be done or maybe you know it's a car accident case you've done if you're a plaintiff's attorney you've done you know dozens of these you may have the same set of discovery that you do every time that might not, so like a form, right? And you just say, okay, send out that form, but it might not include the three or four questions that are really important for this case, and you don't know that you have to ask those three or four questions until seven, eight, nine months in. Then you send your second supplement or your, you know, your supplemental requests or your second set of requests, and you know it can it can be a while out, and so it just takes it just takes time in any given case to do a deposition, you've got to coordinate the schedules of at least four people per witness, plaintiff's attorney, defense attorney, witness, and court reporter. That's a pretty simple deposition to schedule, but there's still four people you have to schedule. It gets harder if your witness has a lot of busyness, you know, is a busy person, not a lot of availability. And then as the attorneys are busier and busier, it gets harder. Court reporters are generally pretty easy. But then every time you add a party to the case it just gets that much harder Uh, there are some cases i'm working on where there are a dozen defendant physicians scheduling depositions for those cases is terribly hard but everyone has the right to be there and to have their attorney present and so we have to take reasonable efforts to schedule everyone at a time that works for everyone now all of this may point you to a couple conclusions one that there's a lot of scope for if an attorney wants to hide information or if a party wants to hide information and act in bad faith, try to cover up, there's a lot of scope to do it. So for example, you know, someone says produce the drilling records for oil rig 37 and you get them and you say, Oh geez, these are really bad for us. What do we do? If you just wanted to not produce them, it might be hard for the other side to even know they're there, but you might be able to know what a puzzle piece is, and what it looks like by the missing piece right you've got these other kind of collateral information so you can know well geez there should be an output report for oil rig 37 and maybe that's the concerning document um, because i see them for 38 39 and 40 on the on this day where is it for 37 so what what do you do if you think the other side's hiding or is not doing discovery right or is making improper objections or is not producing information Well, you have to bring it to the court's attention because it's ultimately the court that enforces discovery requests, but discovery is supposed to be a self-regulating thing. The courts take the view, and I think quite rightly, that if they had to rule on every discovery dispute, they would be doing nothing but refereeing discovery disputes. So the rules of civil procedure actually require the parties to try to reach a settlement or a stipulation when a discovery dispute arises. The parties have what's known as a duty to meet and confer and they have to discuss what are the alleged discovery discrepancies, and then they have to confer on a good faith solution to them. If they cannot do that, then the requesting party or the dissatisfied party can file a motion, what the court called a statement of discovery issues, and there are technical requirements, but it's supposed to be a fast-moving motion. It's not like a motion for summary judgment where there's a lot of drafting and briefing. It's supposed to be a two- or three-page you know, Your Honor, this is what we requested. This is what they responded. This is why I think they're holding information back and I want you to order them to comply. That's done. One party files it, one party files a response, and the court actually can issue sanctions if it finds that discovery was wrongfully withheld or essentially not given if, if there was bad faith. The sanctions go all the way from ordering the responding party to order costs and fees or to pay costs and fees to the other side to outright dismissal of of an action or granting of judgment. The court has a lot of authority, but normally what happens is when there's a discovery dispute and the parties can't meet and confer on the issue, they go to the judge and they ask for a ruling and the judge gives them a ruling and that's it. There's normally no sanctions awarded sanction, no sanctions given. So let's talk about briefly now some other duties that parties have when it comes to discovery. So parties have a duty to be diligent in responding to discovery requests, meaning they have a duty to investigate their own files, their own information, to identify the information which is potentially responsive, and then to produce it in the in the way in which it's kept or <clears throat> in an organized manner. So you can't just like dump documents on people, but you can say, hey, these are the way the documents are kept and, and produce them. So if you get your client's file and it's really messy you can produce it it's exactly as it's kept you have a duty of investigation you have a duty of good faith response you have a duty to your client of course to object if you think information is being requested that's improper or privileged but you also have a duty to make sure that your objections are limited and based on on law if a party has requested privileged information you have a duty to produce what's called as a privilege log saying Look, you've requested all documents referencing any communications between A and B. Part of that is protected information. Let's say B is an attorney, but not all of it was related to the attorney giving, you know, legal advice, but these nine documents are, these are the date and times on which they were, the document was created, and this is roughly what it it involves, you know, it's communication between an attorney and client regarding legal advice on topic A. You also have a duty to meet and confirm good faith, meaning if you've had a dispute arise between you, you have a duty to meet the other side, to candidly discuss the issue, and to try to resolve it. It's actually pretty easy to say what the overall policy goal of discovery is. It's to allow the parties to reasonably identify and discover the information that can help them make their case so that the parties aren't going into trial blind as to what, one, they need to put on evidence to prove, but two, what the other side is, is likely to put on. It helps us focus the dispute. It helps us put the best information forward for the jury to make it determination. termination. And, and at its best, it really helps us adjudicate claims in, in a reasonable manner. But discovery is also where almost all of the expense of litigation comes from. It's where most attorneys who litigate spend most of their time, and it's where most of the daily disputes and headaches that attorneys find in their practice comes in. And if you're a party to a case, discovery can be really the biggest expense you end up paying. So it's important to keep an eye on on these things, and, and from time to time, the courts undertake efforts to make discovery more efficient. And I don't know that they've really been able to because it is inherently... Kind of a clumsy process. Our next episode is going to look at a doctrine, actually several doctrines called estoppel. And estoppel is actually one of my favorite fields of law, and not to give too much away, estoppel is kind of the legal equivalent of the no-take-back rule, and we'll get into that further. Well, if you find this episode helpful, useful, informative, please continue to subscribe, please give it a good review, share it with a friend, and stay tuned.